Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. On today's show, we have Declan Dowling. He is a person who I got introduced a few weeks ago from another friend, and he runs a thing. He's part of this group called the Noble Goldman. It's about creating success in you as a person. He worked in the bank for a number of years, and uh, he went to um, uh, University of NYG. Hello, welcome to the show, Declan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks for thanks for taking out some time to, to have a bit of a chat, and hopefully we can uh, share a few experiences with your audience there, and maybe inspire somebody to go out and live an awesome life. Are you originally from uh, the Midlands of Ireland, or where are you um, from originally? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Tullamore, County Offaly. My parents emigrated to the States when I was two. We lived in Chicago for two years and my mother loved it out there. My mother would be quite quite an extrovert and uh, my dad is the, the kind of the, the quiet guy, but he didn't think that um, Chicago was a place to bring up kids. So myself and my younger brother came back to Ireland, back to Tullamore after two years. So lived for Chicago in two years and then back to Tullamore. So that's where I'm from originally. And, and did you, like, did you go to second primary school, secondary school? Tell, give us a back, background of your education before you went to yeah, university. Yeah, uh, yeah, basically lived in Chapel Street in Tullamore, went to the, 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 the convent there and progressed into the Christian Brothers uh, in Tullamore. Um, yeah, all, all my, I suppose, uh, primary secondary education in, in, in Tullamore, moved on, from, moved on from there. Well, I suppose in, in, in Tullamore, uh, it was very much caught up in the whole um, in the GA. My, my my dad was very involved in the GA, uh, so I would have had a, a very sort of a sporting sporting type upbringing as such in, in, in multiple sports. You know, so 
Um, I, can, I, can, I can give you some details on that. <laughs> I can backtrack on that a little bit. But yeah, basically, spent my all my youth in Tullamore um, at 17 years of age. Well, did my leave and started at 16, turned 17 that summer, and got a job as a trainee lab technician in in UCG at the time, NUIG as it's called now. So um, yeah, that was a, that was a big transition for me to go from a, a town in the Midlands to well a small city I suppose in Galway. Yeah, that was the start of my start of my real education. <laughs> <laughs> um, it must have been a huge adjustment to go from a small country town to a, a medium-sized city, you know. Well, I'll tell you a quick story on that one. Uh, a cousin of mine picked me up um, at the railway station in Air Square, and at the time it was the Great Southern Hotel. So we come out of the, out of the railway station and walk down into Air Square, and I see all these cars with lights on the roof. Now this is quarter past nine on an October on an October evening, and uh, I turned to my cousin and I said, well, "You know, the crime must be pretty high here in Galway." And he looks at me and he says, "Why?" I said, "Not squad cars." And he says, they're not squad cars, he said, they're taxis. <laughs> because back in 1975, uh, the, only, the only vehicle I ever saw with a light on the roof was you know, a squad car. Not, not that I was ever in one or anything, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it just went goes to show how naive I was back then. You know, I literally just gone 17, uh, back in 1975, out of the, you know, I suppose, well, what I thought was a big town in Offaly, uh, up to a city in the, in the west so yeah that was that's where I was at <laughs> <laughs> and when you moved from, from uh, into Galway were you playing GA at the time or were you in sport at the same time as well uh, well funnily enough I had stopped playing GA I had uh, my background I, I played a lot of underage football I, you know from my sins I, I had a, I had a I played with the awfully under-14 team that with a lot of the guys that actually went on to win the All-Ireland there in the 82 afterwards. Um, so uh, yeah, obviously that was that was, uh, that was a great experience. I, I played, you know, like as, as a 14 and 15 year old, I was, I was tall and uh, I would have been on the school teams, you know, so I was, I was playing well. I was playing, you know, playing, uh, you know, 14, 15, playing with guys who were, you know, 16, 17, 18. So that was that was a, a great experience, but quite intimidating as well because you're, you're still quite young. But I, I broke away from, from football and I started started to play a lot of basketball and you know do the community games um, and table tennis. And then I actually evolved into a game into, into snooker, much to my father's disgust. Um, so I stopped playing GA from the age of 16. I played juvenile as well. I never played minor, never played under 21. Um, so I went off on a different path. And um, I I was like a jack, of, a jack of all trades and a master of none, even though I did get to a high level. I won a, I won a, a Leinster under 16 and under 21 table tennis tournament. Um, I, I got an office sports star award for snooker at 17 years of age once much to the chagrin of my dad because the guy who got it for football, my dad gave me a, a nudge in the ribs and he says to me, that should be you. <laughs> you know, get it, uh, receiving the football award. Uh, but it was, you know, it, it was a great learning curve for me because I, um, you know, snooker, whilst, whilst uh, I enjoyed it, enjoyed, um, you know, the, the intensity of of uh, improving myself and pitting myself against other people. It wasn't a team sport. 
Um, so, despite being offered, um, it, and you know, back at the time with Steve Davis, a guy asked me at the time how much was I earning in UCG, and I was on to, you know, a little over 25 quid a week. And he said to me, "Pack your job in," he says, "and I'll, I'll sponsor you." And uh, you know, I was only what, 18, 19 at the time, so there was no way I was going to pack in a, you know, a permanent pension of a post back then. But um, it was, it was probably, you know, Aaron, a funny little bit of a start, of a start of a pattern of maybe sabotaging myself. I'll cover this maybe a little bit later, where I kind of got to a high level of achievement, um, and then I pulled away from it. And it was maybe a fear of success rather than a fear of failure, if that makes sense. Yeah. That, that was a big learning curve for me. Um, and what happened then was my, a little bit before that, I met the love of my life, the beautiful Anne, who's my wife. And um, she went, we went out together for about a year, and then Anne went to London to train as a nurse. And uh, you've heard the old saying there, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. Well, that was the case. So between me popping over to, to London and I was training as a nurse in Richmond in Surrey and uh, her popping back over here. Uh, she qualified as a nurse and uh, a couple of years later uh, we got married at 22 um, which was which was great. Uh, I wanted to get married a bit sooner but I was at the time saying no I'm not going to get married until I'm 27 um, and uh, that's just what, <laughs> the way things turned out. So anyway, um, that was the start of something wonderful. So obviously, obviously, still down in, in Galway, and was working as a nurse down there. And not long after, we had our first child, Ashling. So uh, yeah, that, that that changed our lives around a little bit. But what happened? Uh, what happened there was the fact that Anne's parents were still living in Tullamore, um, and my parents were still living in Tullamore. Um, I started by playing a bit of football in college. Um, you know, in interdepartmental tournaments. And there was a guy called Martin Newell, who was the professor of maths at the time. And Martin was one of the, the uh, one of the stalwarts on the Galway three in a row team that won the All-Irelands back in 66. And uh, in one particular game, um, I was only just, you know, I was very unfit. Um, but Martin came over and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me, I was after scoring a goal, of course, so I was a great lad, but I wasn't able to run back to the halfway line <laughs> for the tip ball. <laughs> and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, you know something, you should be ashamed of yourself. He says, a young fella like you. He says, with the, with the, with the talent you have, you're so unfit. And Martin was about 40, maybe early 40s at the time. You know, he was up and down the field like a greyhound. And it was just kind of one of those little defining moments for me. You know, you get these little kind of jabs. Yeah. So uh, so I started to take football a little bit more serious. I started playing a bit of soccer. And then the fact that we were going up and down home to Tullamore, I got back involved with the GA club. Started playing on the GA club. And, you know, the Offaly football were, was going very well at the time, sort of early 80s. And, uh, you know, some of the guys I played with back as a young lad, you know, they were, they were getting to all of them, semi-finals with Kerry and, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. And just the, I suppose the hunger came back in me and I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm good enough to play on that. <laughs> I started back trying to play GH, I couldn't soar the ball around, I was, you know, scouring off to the side of my foot. Um, so I just applied myself and I basically put the effort in. And before I knew it, I was, you know, back playing senior football with Tullamore and then I was 
the selectors asked me to come and try out for the Offaly team and got a, I got a bit of a run with it there and um, it was actually the year that Matt Connor, who was probably one of the best players in the country, had his car accident. And uh, I was played, even though back then I was six foot three and a bit, the, the bit being very important because I have a brother who's six five and another brother who's six seven. But um, I was actually I was actually picked to play corner forward, which was kind of unusual. You know, not six foot three corner forward, but I was quite fast for uh, for a big guy. And uh, needless to say, when I got when I got the, the chance to get on the off panel, I was super excited to get the opportunity to play alongside Matt Connor, and I was visualising myself. You know, in an all-around final with Matt full forward and me corner forward and we causing havoc. But unfortunately, that didn't materialise because I had Matt had a, an accident that left him paralysed. So, uh, so yeah, so that was a, that was an interesting time. Uh, turned out in the end that I didn't uh, I didn't actually get to stay on the panel too long. Uh, the manager said I was getting too old, and I had words with him, and I said, "Listen, could you not? I've just had the chops to say that I was not good enough." And um, that was fine, but great, great opportunity. Um, uh, loved the whole process there. Loved, loved the involvement with it. Um, transferred in from the club, from Tullamore down to a club back in Galway, and uh, a club that had. It was interesting. Salt Hill, where I was living at the time, um, were going quite well, and I knew Tony Regan, Tony Hirsch Regan, who was the trainer of the Seagulls and teams in Galway. Well, I just approached Tony and said, Tony, listen, I'm thinking of just transferring from Tullamore, just getting sick and tired of all the travelling up and down and that kind of stuff. And he says, Jay's Declan, I'd love to, have, love to have you, but we're trying to encourage and bring the young lads through from underage. They had a pretty good underage system. So um, I said, oh, that's fine. But one of the, one of the guys in the, in the, uh, down at the gym there overheard a conversation and he said, he says, Dowlin, he says, um, St. Michael's have just uh, they've just won the, the intermediate and they're going up um, they're going senior he says um, would you be interested in, in, in uh, signing up with those guys I had a clue who St. Michael's were and I said um, yeah absolutely so I'm doing a training session with them and they were delighted to welcome me to the fold and our very first championship match was against Salt Hill that year and we beat them <laughs> <laughs> so so that was uh, that was a little bit of karma coming around that was great yeah and while you're playing with the GA and you're 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 um you're setting up a family there, were you doing the lab technician as well in the background? Yeah, well, that was that's what I was working at, you know. So my what happened there was, I suppose it was it was I was working with preclinical medical students. So you had the you had the students that were coming in from the leaving certs, you know, the, the guys and the gals with their ten A's and the leaving cert, and uh, you know, coming into into into, into pre med. And uh, so in the earlier years, I would have been involved very much hands-on and setting up a lot of the practical work for the, you know, so they would have been studying osteology, you know, the bones. So we'd, you know, laying out the bones for them, all the different bones in the body. And, you know, we were quite involved with a lot of uh, the um, the preparation of the cadavers, as, as, as they were called, for, for dissection, where they learned, obviously, where every muscle and nerve and ligament was attached and all the anom- anomalies that went on in that scenario. So, like, they were the earlier years. So, yeah, the job was, that was, it, it was very interesting. But one of the things that, that really struck me there was uh, in dealing with these kids that there were, you know, he, these were the people who were going to be potentially a doctor or that was going to be treating me 
or my family, you know, in, in, in latter years, um, if it was sick or whatever. And they really lacked a lot in self-esteem and the ability to be able to communicate properly. They, they wouldn't even, you know, a lot of them couldn't even look you straight in the face and have a conversation. Um, and I, I just, I just, it, 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 that just took me down a path of, of really trying to understand how people communicate. Um, and as, as a part of my, my, my role going forward, I was doing my various exams and stuff. Um, my, the, the professor in the college was actually encouraged me to actually go and do medicine. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going down that road. I was, I was more of a, I was more kind of hands-on. So I got involved in a lot of neuroanatomy uh, research and projects and teaching projects. And um, our professor at the time, had, had, had he was way ahead of himself at the time. He had uh, a teaching process called TAT. So it was te text, atlas and tape. And the, so he was looking at, at teaching through three different modalities. So, he, you know, so the text being, you know, you read about the anatomical structures, etc. Um, and then he had uh, audio tapes made of descriptions of models. So he would he would basically uh, like an audio book precursor for the audio books. So he would speak speak about the, the various let's say for example the anatomy of the, of the leg. So he would speak about the various uh, muscles and the muscle attachments and the various blood vessels you know traversing it and that kind of stuff. But then we had models, we actually made models of plasticine. If you think back to maybe when you were in play school, with Play-Doh or Moline as we used to call it. So we used to make models of all the uh, anatomical, various anatomical, all the anatomical structures. Everything from heart to brain to embryos to you name it. Um, and he would write out the, you know, the, the, uh, the description of, of it all and then do the audio on it. So, so we had, you know, the old tape recorders, cassettes, headphones. So, so the students were, you know, reading the, you know, they were reading the description of it, they were listening to it, and they were, you know, kinesthetically able to, you know, take the models apart and touch them. So, so you were you were learning through three modalities. So that was, you know, that was very, that was very interesting. Um, that further that, that evolved afterwards into computer-based training where I was taking a lot of that material and basically putting it up on, on, on the computer through a software program called AuthorWare. So again, it was, you probably didn't have the same tangibility of, of touch, but it was it was more interactive on the computer. Um, but it sparked an interest in in the whole neuroanatomy side of things because once I got a, a let's say, a, an academic understanding of the workings of the brain, I got very intrigued around, well, how does the brain work? Or more importantly, how does the mind work? And um, that was further triggered by, triggered by my introduction to a network marketing company. Um, I had a friend in, in, in the library that was very helpful for me when I was you know, looking for uh, journals and researching papers and stuff there. Uh, I got a phone call out of the blue one day from her asking me, um, I just recently bought a house and she obviously knew this, you know. Uh, Anne was working as a nurse in the in the in Merlin Park in Galway, and uh, of course Ashley was Ashley was four, um, and and interesting. I just so I, let me just backtrack a small little bit because this is an important important lesson to, uh, for myself and for others. We had we were living in a flat in White Strand, 
uh, in Galway. And uh, we made a commitment, myself and Anne, that we would be in our own house before Ashley started school. And, uh, and we hadn't a bob to rub together, you know, we were driving up and up to the morning regularly, on a regular basis. I was playing a bit of football. Um, but the power of actually setting a goal and, and visualising it and just having that burning desire, a really strong reason to, to have it, uh, it happened for us. So lots of little you know, ducks lined up for, for that to happen. Um, and uh, as I said, we were in our house. Of course, we were in the house with no furniture, uh, with no money, had to paint the floors. We couldn't afford carpet back then. <laughs> So, taking some of the industrial paint that we use on the floors and the labs, I, uh, I uh, acquired some of that. So we had painted floors for the for the first couple of years, which which was fine. So um, yeah, back to my I suppose back to my role in in, in, in uh, the Department of Anatomy and the research um, and my introduction to to uh, to network marketing. This lady introduced me to the concept of network marketing, and I, and I hadn't a clue. She she invited me to a meeting up in the current Great Southern Hotel at the time, which unfortunately is 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 derelict now, out beside the, the GMIT. And uh, there was about 300 people at this event. And there was some, some important guy over from the UK and some fellow from the States. It was a company called um, called NSA. And uh, they, it was a company that marketed water filters, um, air filters, and a product called Juice Plus, which was powdered fruit and veg. So obviously, you know, in, in, in the lab environment, all of, those, all of those products, you know, intrigued me. Um, but when I saw when I saw the, the the modus operandi of how the business operates, you know somebody drawing circles on the board, and uh, I just got intrigued by it because I was I, I was a, I was a big figures guy. I was very left brain orientated. So um, a slide popped up that night, and I'll never forget. It's changed my life, I think, forever. It was a slide by a, a guy called Zig Ziglar. And the slide said, if you help enough people to uh, to attain what they want in life, you'll get what you want. And that just resonated with me. So hence the whole concept of network marketing uh, just really grabbed my attention. So um, I would not I would never have been a reader. In, in school, I struggled uh, in, with French, English, Irish, any of the languages. You know, maths, physics, chemistry, you know, they, I didn't have to study for those. I just, I just blew through those. But um, the languages is really, you know, uh, the likes of Shakespeare and poetry and stuff like that. I just, just could not understand. <laughs> I just couldn't understand it basically. Uh, it's, well, it's not that I couldn't understand it. I just I didn't want it. I just wasn't in that headspace. But when I started in network marketing, one of the things that uh, I was encouraged to do. Was start reading reading a few books. I, I never read books. I think the only book I ever read outside of school was Tom Brown and Tom Tom Sawyer, sorry, Huckleberry Finn. That was it. Yeah, I just had no interest in reading. So, um, and this was a book on organic chemistry or, or physics or whatever. Um, so I was recommended a book uh, by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and. Uh, that was my first real introduction to this, suppose, to the world of personal development. Um, I got my hands on another book then by Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. So this just got me intrigued. And um, just come back to the network marketing side of things, 
um, I started, you know, I sold some products and made a, made a couple of quid. Um, but in the concept of network marketing, I, I couldn't, you know, I was trying to build a team of people because that's the whole concept of network marketing. You're, 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 you're introducing people to the concept of the business and you're helping and supporting them. And you're, the idea is you build up a team and you get a, a, you know, a residual income of, of, of their efforts. Uh, and I found it very difficult. I found it difficult to build a team because I didn't have the skill sets. I was coming over with an academic background. I didn't have any sales skills. Um, so these were, you know, this was the competitor in me. Then I had to, you know, I had to knuckle down and figure out how to do this. Um, but I very quickly, you know, got to understand that, that people buy people. So it wasn't about me learning slick skills, sales techniques, or, or any of that kind of carry on. There's a quote by Maya D'Angelo uh, where she says, People don't care how much you know or who you know. They care. People don't want to know how much, you know, who you know or what you know. They want to know how much you care. And that's ultimately it. It is really about you know making a connection with people and understanding what what it is that they want, what challenges or problems that they have in their lives, and if you can be of some value to help them, sort that out. And that was that was a big lesson for me to learn. That um, that's where the that's where the connection is, um, and people you know. Like if you talk to anybody, most you know, there's a, there's a kind of a joke out there that you know most people's favorite radio station is WII FM. You know what's in it for me? <laughs> and, and people are listening. You know, in conversations. You know, if you're talking to somebody, you know, most people unfortunately are listening for you to either stop and take a breath so they can say something, or they're listening to you with a view to uh, you know coming in with their with their speed. So they're not really listening, you know, people aren't really listening as such. Um, they're, they're hearing what you're saying, but they're not listening. So I slowly but surely started to, you know, get a deeper understanding of, of, of this. Um, and um, I ca- then came across a guy called Leslie Feger. Um, Leslie, I would have to say, it was the, if you ask, you know, there's, there's certain key moments in your life. One was obviously Martin Newell giving me a kick in the ass when it came to being so unfit and not using my sporting talents. Um, but Leslie Fieger is, uh, came into my life and he was a guy that, that certainly woke me up. I would have been a very, you know, obviously if you're working in, in, in a laboratory situation there and research situation, you're very left brain orientated. So you're rationalizing stuff and making sense of stuff. So I was, I was the guy that, if I couldn't pull it asunder, take it apart, dissect it, figure it out, um, I just, I wasn't accepting it. And um, Leslie Figure is a, he's a personal development trainer, he's an author, um, he's a, he's a guy that's just basically able to explain, if you want to call it the, you know the higher level stuff when it comes to personal development when you're, you're asking the, the deeper questions around existence and your purpose in life and you're getting into let's say um, exploring you know spirituality looking at you know the at existence looking at the you know quantum mechanics and looking at the, the metaphysical and I got hold of one of his courses called the Delphi Knowledge System and it just blew my mind because it was the, this was the first time I came across a work that introduced me to spirituality. Now, bear in mind, I was born born in Tullamore, raised in Chapel Street. My uncle was the sacristan of the church. 
educated by the Christian brothers, you know, was, was a master, so, you know, raised in a very strong Catholic environment. So the word spiritual was meant, was meant you know, or spiritualism was meant. It was, I, I kind of nearly recoiled from it because I was thinking, what's, you know, is this, is this cult stuff? Is this uh, Ouija boards? Is it, you know, is it, is it occult? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I just never, I was never in that space. So Leslie's work opened me up to up to meditation and I suppose the deeper you know, thinking around around uh, my own thoughts and introduced me to a concept of a concept called be do have where most I was probably operating from the have do be in other words like you know when I have the college degree or when I have the when I have the certificate or when I have the money you know I would do such and such and then I would be successful or I'll be happy. So it was the mindset of, you know, I have to have this before I can actually do something, you know, to be to be happy, successful, etc. Um, and the concept of be do have, so be the person who would who would do the, the the actions to have the results that you want to see show up in your life. And that's a that's a that's a change of mindset completely because we have so many limiting beliefs embedded in our in our neural pathways from our education, from our parents, from our peers. That um, you know, when you when you start to look at these concepts initially, there's paradigms uh, set up inside your in your mind that, that you need to break through and and, and release for you to actually uh, become all that you can become. So I went on a deep dive there on that to, to basically get an under, a real deep understanding of myself and try and get an understanding of what my purpose in life was. I was asking those kind of questions. Um, and uh, it just took me into a, into a whole new realm. So I quit my job then. So just mo- moving on. I mean, obviously, my, my work in, in neuroanatomy and, and the, the surgeons coming back, sorry, doctors coming back to, you know, to brush up on their, on their anatomy for sur- surgeon, for studying as surgeons. Um, and my, obviously, my involvement in the network marketing industry, I just started to think more outside of the, the confines of academia. And when you get involved in, in a direct sales business or a network marketing business and you go out, you know, unskilled, you, you, you get wiped completely. So you, you, you have an academic sort of arrogance going out there, you know, with your education behind you. That You, know, you think that if you tell people about, you know, the features and benefits about a product or a service that, you know, that they, they, sh- they should buy from you. My God, did I get such a wake-up call when I came out into the world of reality. You know, people with no education, I want to say no education, I mean no academic education, people who left school, you know, and through no fault of their own or whatever, uh, in their early teens, but went out there and uh, basically had the street smarts or developed the street smarts, you know, to, to build build big and successful businesses there. You, get, you just get totally, you know, this, this is where you get a proper education. So for me, you know, the, our, our education system has let so many, so many of us, of us down. They've educated us, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three, but nowhere in school was was I ever taught how to handle anger, how to look at uh, motivation, look at ambition, um, you know, people skill sets. You know, it was drilled into us just get the points, you know, to go to university and get a good education and go and do your thing. So. Um, that just opened up a whole new realm for me then. 
as I say, when I came across Les's material there. And uh, I just got so passionate about wanting to share this uh, information with people. Um, and the, when I say I'm passionate about it, I started to understand the concept of that instead of being a creature of circumstances, I was just looking around and being aware of so many people who were just unhappy or struggling. And I said, instead of being a creature of your circumstances, why not be a creator of your circumstances? So I started to, uh, what I did was I packed my job in, in college. Uh, I went I went out to an event out in Hawaii, one of Leslie's events. And uh, I just said, you know, I'm looking at the guys I'm working with in, in the college uh, and I'm saying to myself, there's no way I want to be those guys in 20 years, in 20 years time. And uh, I basically came back and I handed in my notice and they said to me, oh, Declan, you know, you'll be 25 years here in, I think it was the 14th or the, or the 19th of October. Uh, and I said to myself, look, if I, you should hang on for two more weeks and you'll get another two and a half percent on your pension. And, but I had my mind made up and I said, no, I'm gone. I said, if I, if I'm pulled back into the 19th of October, I'm going to get pulled back into a whole new semester. I get sucked back into the whole scenario there. I said, no, I'm gone. So no redundancy, no nothing. I just said, I'm gone. In hindsight, that was a mistake. <laughs> because I was, uh, I used the term optimistically delusional that uh, I, could, I could go and build a business in the personal development board. I felt that uh, it was the time, you know, every, everybody wanted this. Or, or, or everybody needed this, not, not everybody wanted it. So um, I basically went out and I started, I started to do workshops and little seminars and stuff. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't charging enough for it. I was paying for hotels. Uh, I wasn't charging people enough. Um, I ended up literally being the statue in the square where the pigeons were shitting all over me. Uh, excuse the terminology there, but uh, I had people who were telling me that you know Declan, fantastic, you know, this, you know these workshops and these these events you're doing are terrific. When are you doing the next one? And I got I got frustrated because I was trying to teach people how to think for themselves and take responsibility for their own thinking and teach them some techniques, but they were they just kept coming back looking for me to to basically shine the light for them. And uh, you've seen the the, uh, the analogy of you know pointing the finger and pointing the finger of blame, the three fingers pointing back at you. So I just said to myself, I have to extricate myself out of this. I was digging a hole for myself financially. I wasn't making any money. I was actually getting myself deeper and deeper in debt. And uh, I, uh, I had to call a halt to it in the sense of, I said, I need to go, I need to go and learn uh, from other people who are successful in business because I, I obviously I wasn't able to run a business. So uh, my brother-in-law tipped me off about a job in, uh, in AIB. They were looking for somebody to go into the garages uh, to stop the leakage of, they were losing financing there. So um, what I mean by that is, if you go into any garage uh, these days and you see all the, the, big, the big fancy flashy cars that are in the showroom, they're generally stocked by a finance institute. So it could be Bank of Ireland. At the time, said Toyota were being financed by Bank of Ireland. So uh, Tom Hogan Motors, for example, down in Galway, we are a Toyota dealership. So Bank of Ireland were the main financiers of all the showroom cars. 
um, and you got a preferential loan for doing that. And as a result of the preferential loan, a certain amount of the cars, maybe 40 or 50% of any of the cars sold, uh, needed to be put back to Bank of Ireland for finance. You know, if, if somebody came in to buy the car, they would steer them, you know, the car deal would be done, then they'd steer them towards the business manager who would uh, look at look at arranging finance for them. So what was happening was an AIB customer could be in the could be in buying a Toyota and the uh, the finance guy inside would say, Listen, you know, why why bother going to the going going to your bank to sort your finance up? We can sort it out for you here. And uh, you know, basically keep keep your keep your keep your uh, your credit with your with your with your bank intact there in the sense of if you wanted a few quid to, to go on holidays or furniture for the house or whatever there, you know, then use that. Like we can sort of finance up for you here. Come back in three hours and here's the keys. So the guys were invariably putting the finance through Bank of Ireland. So if you put your finance through Bank of Ireland, three months later Bank of Ireland were calling you, offering you a credit card, offering you offering you a mortgage, offering you life policy, whatever. So AIB were losing customers. So we've been transitioned over. So they wanted to stop that leakage. So basically, uh, I was given a six-month contract to see could I stem the flow of AIB customers to, to other financial institutes. So you had other banks, permanent TSB, and other, you know, other banks doing the stocking in the yardages. So uh, I was uh, not in a good space financially at the time, as I was in debt. I was actually behind in mortgage payments, um, which if AIB had known at the time, I probably would not have been employed. Um, but I was offered a six-month contract anyway, and uh, I went and I blew the lights out. With respect to, I went around to 54 garages in the first month and had them all signed up to basically deal with me because I had, I had two checkbooks. I had a higher purchase checkbook and a leasing checkbook, and I said, listen guys, all you got to do is, if an AIB customer comes in here, don't turn them over to another financial provider. Leave them with me, um, here's some paperwork, you sign them up, I'll come back in later today or tomorrow and I'll give you a check for the car. So I brought on 54 garages uh, in the first month and AIB couldn't cope with the business because it was all being run through Sandyford um, and it had to be basically uh, stripped back. So I had to go back with egg in my, egg in my face to say that I couldn't give the guys the service that I had promised them uh, because I didn't have the back end support. And um, that was fine, but I, I said to back, I can support you anyway. So uh, that was great. And what happened was, um, that was just in the asset finance side of things. Now bear in mind, at this time, <coughs> excuse me, at this time, I had no banking qualifications. Um, I had no financial qualifications. Um, I had just, I had polished up these skill sets from my, from my network marketing business, from my learning how to deal with people. Um, and um, under-promising and over-delivering. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to over-deliver to you know, all these guys in, in the garages, but we managed to maintain five of the top carriages there, and I, I got serious business for AIB on that. And as a result of that, then, one of the um, one of the asset finance reps in, in the branch network got sick, and they asked me what a cover for her. And I hadn't a clue, I knew nothing about branch banking. You know, I could go in and talk to 
the financial controllers and the, and the garages and the, and the business managers and stuff like that and you know grab business there but here I was now being asked to come into the, into the banking the banking environment the branch network and uh, I hadn't a clue so anyway I said I've got a six month contract here that could or that, that, that may or may not evolve because uh, there probably wasn't enough business just coming out of five garages to warrant, uh, you know, a car on the way on the way backside, uh, mobile phone, laptop, all the various, you know, accoutrements that you do the job. So um, I said, sure. So before I knew it, I was covering AIB in Newcastle, AIB Gort, uh, Tune Road, three or four branches, all the asset finance items, things. So any, you know, plant and equipment and all that kind of stuff. And um, Landed a deal for six hundred thousand uh, for a company in the um, up in the Merview Industrial Estate there, uh, Beckman Instruments, and uh, I just called in, you know, called in, called in cold, a couple of business cards uh, at reception, asked them could I speak to the financial controller? Have you an appointment? No, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just turned out this guy had in, a, in this particular place, this guy had uh, a, a meeting cancelled. And uh, introduced him anyway. Gave him, I gave him a business card and said, "If you look, if you have any financially, any finance and leasing requirements going forward, there, uh, we'd love to be able to give you a quote for it." Blah blah blah. They were banking with Bank of Ireland, which was gas. And uh, he said, "Yeah, actually, we've, we're, we're, we're buying um, we're buying a couple of centrifuges." Oh, centrifuges! I know, I know what they are. I used, to, I used to work as a lab technician. And uh, of course, we start talking about uh, spectrophotometry and all sorts of w- weird and wonderful stuff. Put a long story short, six hundred thousand for this uh, for this centrifuge, and I got the finance deal for it. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> so um, next thing, um, before I know it, my boss calls me in. He tells me that the role that I'm currently in. Uh, not sure where it's going, but that his boss was down for uh, a PR review, performance review with, with my boss, and he wanted to speak to me. So this guy was the head of sales in finance and leasing. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, mm, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. So we have a bit of a chat, and he says, um, you know, just congratulations, Declan, you're doing, you're doing very well there. and. Uh, you know, for a guy with no banking background, etc., etc., you're really bringing the, you're really bringing the business in. So yeah, thanks very much. So this was all going hunky dory anyway. And so he was asking me where I was from, and you know, quizzing me up a little bit. Tom uh, from Tullamore, away from Tullamore, and kids and all that. And he says, "How are you? You know, how are you enjoying the role within the bank?" He said, "Yeah, I love it. Love getting the deal. It is, you know." So that was grand. Following day, I get a phone call from my boss, and he says. Um, one of our asset finance ladies is taking a year out down the Midlands. Uh, would you be, would you be interested in, in, in that role? And I said, well, what's happening with my role here? Knowing that my six month contract was kind of coming up to an end. And he says, um, well, we're not really sure if that will be carried carried on. Uh, we don't know if there's enough business, you know, our, our Sandy for the operation is not geared enough to be able to, to, to extend it. So. So um, said so that's fine. Uh, so what's happening here in the role that I'm in, covering the, covering for the lady who's sick? Well, when she comes back, obviously she's going to slot back. She's going to slot back into a job. So um, 
there's an option to, you know, there's an option maybe down the Midlands if, if you'd be open to take a look at that. And uh, I'm saying to myself, okay, potentially no job in a month's time or um, Midlands, where I'm from, or Anna's from. Uh, I have three kids at this stage. Kevin, my young lad, needs to, because he, he was precocious, needed to stay back a year. He started school early. Um, and I said, uh, yeah, let me let me have a chat with Anne and see if she's up for that. So I had a chat with Anne and she said, what's your look if they call you, if they call you for an interview, so why not go for it? So I rang my boss and he says, uh, I said to him, yeah, look, I'd be inter- interested in, uh, you know, going, going for an interview for that. He said, uh, you had your interview two days ago. It's in job is yours if you want it. <laughs> so, so that chat I had with the head of sales, that was that was it. He just wanted to see me face to face and suss me out. So um two or three months up and down to the up and down to drove up and down from uh, Galway to Athlone and uh, I was put in charge of four branches Athlone, Longford, um Bor and Balmas Law. And uh, started started to develop the business there and uh, we hit the Celtic Tiger then and sure happy days you know, the business was was flourishing doing, doing very well and um, still was very much uh, using my personal development training and knowledge in the bank my intention was to stay in the bank for about three years um, back then AIB was obviously a blue chip company um, and a great place to work for um, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff going on. It was a playground for me to basically, basically polish up my own personal development slash business development skills. And I was saying to myself, look, I'll give it three years. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll be like a sponge. I'll get uh, a good education uh, as to how other business people operate and how uh, you know different business sectors. Um, and then uh, my, my picture was, I, I, I'll come out then as a sort of a business consultant, sort of life coach, business coach. That's that's kind of where my mindset was at the time. But as I say, the Celtic Tiger came in then and things were very good. And uh, basically, business was very good. A uh, lot of bonuses and commissions and all that kind of stuff. Maybe people might not like, that, like to hear that because of the, the way the bank scenario went. But um, I was like, for me, it was it was just basically. I said to people, "Look, let me let me help you out with the financing of any aspect of your business there. Um, so whether it's on the asset finance side of things or any other, you know, I referred them back into who I felt was a good fit in the branch network to help them, you know, with business development, uh, that kind of stuff. So it was it was a win-win for everybody at the time until the Celtic Tiger." Uh, got a heart attack and lay over um, and that was you know money was money was very freely available during the Celtic Tiger because unfortunately if AIB didn't give it out to somebody they got it from one of the other banks so it was it was a bit ridiculous and, you know I suppose everybody was enjoying the good times when the times were good but then when the when the shit hit the fan forgive the French uh, a totally different totally different dynamic um, developed so um, I went into a role actually then of you know, what it was called customer relationship management, which basically meant that I had to go out and deal with customers who were defaulting on their loans, um, and that was a tough gig. Uh, not not overly necessary for, necessary for me because 
um, I was basically a bridge between people and the bank when it came to sort of the renegotiation of, of loans and that kind of stuff and, you know, really helping them, you know, first of all, not get, not get themselves, uh, well, you know, assisting them not get, you know, too emotionally tied up in it. Like it was, like it was, it was money and it had to be paid back. But uh, unfortunately, so many people got, uh, as we know, even suicidal over the amount of money that was that was uh, outstanding there. So I was just involved in a lot of restructuring there and just was only just too glad to be able to help people um, and really reach out to people uh, and put their minds at ease there because, you know, so many people just got so stressed out over that and got sick and other unfortunate incidents there. Um, so, obviously, as you know, look, it took a long time for that to kind of pan out. Uh, mean, meanwhile, I'm saying to myself, it's time for me to get out of the bank here because it was just so toxic. So many of the big guns had, had uh, were either sidelined or left or were asked to leave. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the good staff, the ground staff, were left to carry the can. And, um, you know, it was tough times. But uh, again, it was, it just gave me such so many different experiences from dealing with people, you know, who were who were distraught and who were overwhelmed with financial difficulties to, uh, you know, people looking to uh, rise up over the ashes of the of the of the, the Celtic Tiger. And um, you know, I learned a lot, learned a lot about people, learned a lot about understanding people there and a lot about helping people. So um, fast forward, I um, Took early retirement two years ago, um, much to the chagrin of my boss. Uh, <laughs> I was it was gas. I was the, I was covering a lot of territory within the bank, uh, based still based out of Athlone, where I'm still living. Uh, but it had me covering Nace and Ashburn, and you know a lot, a lot of driving, a lot of a lot of uh, covering a lot of area. And I just said, I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting too old for this. Uh, even though I still think I'm only 27, I'm 60, I turned 61 there in July. Um, I just said, look, it's it was the whole area was just toxic, uh, too much negativity, a lot of stress, a lot of sickness going on all around me. And I said, uh, you know, friends my age, fellas I played football with and handball with and stuff, you know, led over cancer or, or, or dying and heart attacks and stuff. And I said, uh, I'm out of here. So took a, just took an early retirement two years ago and best decision I ever made. So um, now what I'm doing is I'm, stuck, I'm very much involved in the whole personal development area. I've uh, reconnected with my buddy, Leslie Fieger, who, as I say, transformed my life 20 years ago. And uh, doing a little bit of work with Leslie with respect to getting some of his big seminars, his multimedia, multidimensional seminars that, that give a very powerful um, transcendent experience for people that really waken them up into the power of, of what they're capable of doing. Um, and uh, as a result of that, I got, you mentioned it there at the top of the call, Aaron, um, I'm involved with a platform called Noble Goldman, which is essentially a platform for helping people to um, participate in masterminds. So anyone who's starting up a business or any solopreneurs or entrepreneurs out there, we know that it's it's very difficult to start a business uh, or to do a business on your own. 
that you need help. You need the skill sets and experience of others. But um, a lot of people out there don't have the money to, you know, especially in an early startup scenario, to employ people or bring these people in. So this this um, this platform of masterminding is absolutely brilliant. So we what we do is we invite people onto the platform. It's, it's free to join. You can participate. We encourage people to come in and, and participate in the on, on, in in a mastermind uh, and learn the skill sets uh, around the formation of a mastermind. So the the idea behind it is come in, participate in a mastermind with a view to starting your own mastermind. So your own mastermind are the people that you admire out there that have the skill sets and experience that you'd like to have around your table, as in other words, your board of directors. So I'm involved in coaching and mentoring people do that and set those platforms up, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, on the back end of it, we actually have an option for people to, partip- to participate in um, uh, multiple income streams. And what I mean by that, there's a few opportunities that once you you know you build up your mastermind team, that people can look at generating additional income resort- income sources over and above what your main business is. So it can be. Uh, and, and involvement in, in an affiliate program, an offline program. We even have some network marketing programs that are people can, get, you know, good ones that people can get involved in. Um, and we teach people the different skill sets that are that are involved in that. And for me, Aaron, one of the real big things for me now is that if you look at the current, uh, I suppose, just where where we are now, the uh, the rapid rise in, in the use of technology. Uh, the day of the permanent pensionable post is long gone. You look at the millennials, you know, they'll, they'll jump, they'll hop and jump from, from one job to another. Um, there's still an element of instant gratification out there. But, you know, call me an old fogey, I'm still what I would term a belly-to-belly person. I, I like to meet people. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, in, in this, arena, this area of, you know, literally you can do your business on a mobile phone now. Uh, you don't even need a laptop. You can do it on a mobile phone. Um, but in 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 this in this arena of, of 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 high technology, there's a lot of disconnect with people. There's a lot of people out there craving interaction. They're connect. They're craving connection. I mean, human, real, genuine human connection. And when you bring people into a mastermind scenario, whether it's offline or online, it's 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 huge for people. And it gives people the, you know, that 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 that, that connection back, um, and an understanding that look, you don't have to be an expert in all the skill sets that are out there. That um, you know, you, you you associate with people who have the skill sets that, that you lack in, and you focus on your strengths. There's a great book out there called First Break All the Rules, written by a guy called Marcus Buckingham, and I can't remember the other guy. They did um, a Gallup survey years back, about 10 or 11 years ago, more maybe. Uh, I read that book back then, and I was forever banging on to my boss in the bank to, uh, you know, to, to read this and, and understand the, the concepts in there. There's 12 core principles in it. I, I recommend everyone in Ireland to read it. It's called First Break All the Rules. Uh, a little bit ironic that the bank have actually taken on board, AB took on board a lot of the concepts in that book uh, a couple of years back uh, and integrated into how, how they operate now. But um, it's uh, again, you know, one of, the, one of the concepts in there is you, you, it's to help people to understand that the day the day is gone of really 
you know, working working an hour for a for a wage here. We should not be caught up in the trap of you know the forty-hour work week for the forty-hour forty-year pension, and then trying to survive on forty percent of what you of what you earned. Uh, there's so much abundance out there that um, people can you know instead of going out there putting a fork in trying to scoop it up, you know, there's so many ways that people can earn a living out there. Uh, and I saw it in the bank that you know if you could help people, if you could put an extra 500 quid or a thousand into a household, not alone would you maybe save people uh, from losing their house, but you'd see you'd see have a lot of relationships and a lot of a lot of marriages, because unfortunately you know money is one of the big the big quandaries in people's lives and one of the things that people argue and fight over most. So that's the space I'm in now, helping and 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 coaching and mentoring people to look at improving themselves first, uh, becoming better communicators um, and learning how to communicate better with themselves first and then communicating better with their with, with people in their lives. Um, and then looking at ways of generating uh, additional income streams for themselves and not be dependent on, on, one, on a job or on one source of income from a business. If you look at the likes of Richard Branson out there, I don't know how many companies he has, 350 or 400 companies. Uh, he's not hands-on in them all. But if if you can help people to take the blinkers off in this day and age uh, and look at uh, generating a couple of sources of income for, them, for themselves, no matter where there's a dip in whatever sector, if you have a diverse range of income streams coming in there, You'll have more time freedom for yourself. You'll have more f- money freedom for yourselves to do the things that you want to do in life for you and your family. And that's the space I'm in, Aaron. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what you guys share, man. It's been a fabulous time. You're, you're more than welcome. As I say, look, if I can help anybody or anybody stuck out there, you know, it's a phone call away or a message on Facebook or LinkedIn or Skype or whatever, you know. So. Hopefully, hopefully it'll inspire somebody, Aaron, to to uh, realise that they're so they're capable of so much more in life. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 